It's a Wednesday afternoon in late spring, and I'm where I usually am. I'm at a casino, playing poker so I can pay rent. I arrive and leave when I want to, but one way or another, this week I'll spend about 40 hours in card rooms. I've had a number of real jobs in my life, but now I'm a professional gambler. This is the podcast about the lives of poker players like me. Welcome to the first episode of Third Man Walking. Most people my age are at work. If my life had led me in a different direction, maybe I'd be in an office park somewhere, hunched over a computer, my tie sliding against the laminate that lines the edge of my desk as I puzzle over a spreadsheet or a memo. Maybe this version of me is fulfilled, making important decisions about interesting projects and enjoying the promise of an upwardly mobile future. Or maybe this version is just stuck in a cubicle, performing meaningless and predictable tasks for a mean and unpredictable boss. In real life, the path I've chosen can be either of those things, depending on the day, the month, or even the year. I can go weeks making decisions for large sums of money and get nearly all of them right, with my cards and my choices darting and weaving like synchronized swimmers, or I can have days or weeks where nearly everything goes wrong. Today it's the latter. I'm in a big game with blinds of $5, $10, and $25 in an unfamiliar city against opponents I don't know. After a few hours, I'm struggling. I haven't picked up many good hands, and the ones I've had, like pocket aces, which lost a fairly large pot to pocket threes, haven't worked out. Finally, I get what appears to be a big opportunity. I race to $75, one before the button, with queen jack of spades. The small blind calls, and the straddle, that is, the player putting out the $25, makes a tiny raise to $250. I call, and the small blind folds. The first three community cards are king, queen, five, with the king and five of spades. So I have a pair and a draw to a spade flush, which is great. But my opponent can have lots of strong hands like kings, queens, king, queen, aces, or ace, king. He bets $175 into a pot of about 580, and I call. Now the pot is $930, and the turn is an offsuit 10, that is, a 10 that isn't a spade. Now I can make a straight on any ace or nine, and I still have my flush draw and a pair. My opponent checks. I think it would be reasonable to bet a hand like this that stands up well against anything my opponent might have. But he does have many hands that are currently better than mine, and if he doesn't, my pair of queens might be good enough to win on its own. So I check too. The final card is an offsuit nine completing a board of king, queen, five, ten, nine, and giving me a king high straight. My opponent checks yet again, and now I make a fairly small bet of $500, hoping to get called by three of a kind, two pair, or ace king. Instead, my opponent raises to $1,700. I think about it for a second, but there isn't much to do but call. If my opponent has worse than a straight, he won't call another raise, and I do lose to one hand that makes an ace-high straight, ace-jack. So I call, and my opponent shows ace-jack, and rakes in a pot of over $4,000. The next day, I go to a different casino and find a 510 game. After several hours, I've run my buy-in of $1,500, up to about 3200 
By the evening, I'm one of only five players left in the game. One of them starts blind raising, adding money to each pot before looking at his cards. The blind raises are sometimes $50, then sometimes $100, then $200. The game is becoming dangerously big, but this guy is adding so much value to each pot, it would be crazy to leave. Finally, he blind raises to $800, a full 25% of my stack. With two other players left to act, I pick up pocket eights and go all in. The player immediately to my left is already up $25,000 or so, which is easily the most I've ever seen a player win in one session at this stake. He calls. So does the player who blind raised, although I assume he can have just about anything. The player to my left shows pocket tens. I don't improve and lose a pot of roughly $10,000. The player who is blind raising stands up and the game screeches to a halt. I drive back to my hotel, about $6,000 poorer than I was two days before. Days like these are disappointing, but at least they're exciting. In poker, you can endure what are called coolers, like my queen-jack versus ace-jack hand, which occur when you have something very good, only to run into an opponent who has something even better. You can also fall victim to bad beats, in which you invest heavily with the best hand, only to lose when an unlikely card gives your opponent a late lead. Or you can simply bluff for a large amount and get called. There are many ways to lose a lot of money quickly. But at least losing a lot of money quickly is interesting. Many of the most frustrating poker sessions are just boring. You might be one of 6 to 10 players at your table at any given time, so you should only be able to win about 1 sixth to 1 tenth of the hands you're dealt. And in live poker, you might only get dealt about 30 hands an hour. So there will be long stretches, often hours at a time, where you don't win any significant hands, and your money trickles away. Theoretically, you're supposed to pay attention while all this is happening, to search for clues about how your opponents play. But the slowness of the game can make that difficult, especially when it's common to watch a hand all the way through, only to not find out in the end what your opponents had. Your phone becomes a constant temptation. Meanwhile, what you're really doing is waiting. Waiting for the right opportunity. Some days it never comes. Other days it does, but you wind up holding the king high straight against the ace high straight, and two weeks worth of living expenses disappears. At most jobs, you get regular paychecks. Frequently, I lose money, even if I've done my job well. I can lose for a month at a time, or maybe even longer, all the while never being quite sure if there's something I can do a little better to turn my luck around. So what is this? What sort of person plays this game, and what sort of insane person does this for a living? I started playing poker regularly in 2009 and played as a hobby for many years. A few years ago, I got more serious about the game and quit more and more of what I did for work. By the middle of 2018, poker was my only significant source of income. Poker is probably the most rewarding and certainly the most thrilling job I've had, but there are serious drawbacks. It can be draining and alienating. Sometimes you lose a lot of money. Even in the relatively small games I play, you can drop ten dollars or $20,000 before you get the ship righted. It's a job where you constantly have to reevaluate your level of ability and earnings potential, often with inadequate evidence to guide you. It's a job that invites delusional dreamers to join its ranks. It's a job that your friends and family might not understand or approve of. 
It's a job that can leave you broke if you don't manage your money well enough. And ultimately, it's a job we all have to do by ourselves. Poker takes each of us on a lonely journey. Sure, we socialize at the table. We make friends within the poker community. Some of us pursue financial relationships that distribute the risks we're taking. But ultimately, there's one player to a hand. And when the action is on us, we each have to figure things out on our own. Poker is an umbrella term that refers to a number of different card games, but the one that's dominated since the poker boom of the early 2000s, and the one I play today, is No Limit Hold'em. The rules of No Limit Hold'em are simple. Each player gets two whole cards, known only to them, that they combine with any of five community cards to create the best five-card hand. There are four rounds of betting, during which you can bet or raise whatever you want, and if you aren't willing to match the biggest bet, you have to fold. The last player left, or the player with the best hand once the four rounds of betting are complete, wins the pot. So the rules are simple, but the strategy is complex, thanks to the endless combinations of whole cards and community cards, along with the tendencies of the players involved. A tight opponent, one who's cautious with their money, might play only 10-15% to of starting hands, whereas a loose one might play 30 or more. A player's range is the array of hands they could have. A tight player might have a well-defined range of strong starting hands, mostly pairs and combinations of high cards like ace-king. A loose player might have a somewhat harder-to-define range that includes strong starting hands, but also lots of weak ones. But the tight player's apparent advantage can easily disappear with the arrival of the first three community cards, collectively called the flop. In a confrontation between a tight player and a loose one, the tight player has the edge on a flop of ace-king-9, since the tight player's range includes proportionately more high cards like aces and kings. But the loose player can be dangerous on a flop like 6-5-4, since the loose player has far more whole cards like 8-7 and 6-4 that make straights and two pairs. Now, that makes it sound like the tight player and the loose player are essentially equal, that it all comes out in the wash, and it doesn't. If your style is well chosen for your opponents and the structure of the game, it's possible to play any number of styles effectively. But in general, it's better to be tight. And this is the starting point for many players, like me, who hope to make money in this game even though we aren't geniuses. Loose players are hard to play against. And the better you are, the looser you can play against weaker opponents. But mostly, loose players give up too much by playing bad cards. It's also better to be aggressive rather than passive. It's better to be the one raising and re-raising rather than the one calling. You can play big pots when you have strong hands, and you can sometimes win by getting your opponents to fold when you don't. But playing tighter and more aggressively is not what most players naturally want to do. Playing poker is fun. Seeing flops is fun. So many players are essentially reacting, tossing in a couple chips in response to someone else's bet just to see what happens. Sometimes they win, Over time, when they play too many hands and make reactive plays, they leave bits of value for people like me to pick up. That doesn't make me a better or smarter person than someone who plays this way. It's just a function of what poker is for each of us. My opponent wants to gamble and have fun. I also want to have fun, but I want to make money so I can live my life. So I have to be smart about it. Poker players 
frequently compare themselves to animals. Weak players are fish. Weak players with money are whales. And strong players are sharks. Predators. But that isn't the animal metaphor I like best. A fellow pro once told me he saw himself as a cockroach, a lowly creature, a pest, who consumes bits of food left behind by animals higher up the evolutionary ladder. That seems right to me. Sometimes you'll encounter a player who's drunk, or not very bright. And sometimes you'll hear about a weak player whose money came from a lawsuit, or a trust fund, or the lottery. But the people I've won the most from in poker are successful. Doctors and executives and business owners who speak intelligently about any number of topics. Before I found a way to make decent money in poker, I worked as an artist and a writer. I did a lot of things I'm proud of and met certain benchmarks of success. Making money wasn't one of those benchmarks. I never prioritized making money, but I also just didn't know how to do it. Then a few years ago, something clicked when I switched from poker tournaments to live cash games. Suddenly I was making many times more than I ever made actually working. But all I was doing was snacking on the crumbs that richer players had left behind. Poker gives me a degree of freedom from the 9 to 5 that many of these players don't have. But they're still making real money. I still make art, which is fulfilling. Making this podcast is fulfilling in that I'm enjoying making something to give to other people. And even playing poker is fulfilling in a sense because I like the intellectual challenge of it and the way it pushes me to think more clearly. But actually playing poker doesn't really contribute anything to the world, and even the best players make many times less money than the so-called whales in their games. So, who are the real winners at life? Me or my opponents? I'm not a shark. I'm a cockroach. I don't hold myself in especially high regard. I play well enough to get by, but I don't play perfectly, and I don't play the highest stakes. As the episodes of this podcast unfold, I'll discuss my thoughts about some hands I've played, but I'm not giving actual strategy advice. Poker coaches should play much better than I do, although not all of them do. I'm just an ordinary player who's trying to find some crumbs. It is May 4th, 2019, and last night I had my best session of the year so far. It was in a 510 game with a $1,500 cap, and I made almost five buy-ins. So within about an hour, I had already doubled up. A player in late position raised to $30.00. The button called and I was in the small blind with pocket queens and re-raised to $160. The initial raiser very quickly raised again to $480 and it folded to me and against a lot of players at lower stakes I might consider folding here but this player had already shown down a big bluff in the first hour and there were some things about his uh, demeanor and timing that made me think he could turn up with worse than pocket queens here. So I went all in. He called, the board ran out jack high, and I showed my hand and he mucked. So already I was up $1,500 or so when this hand happened. 
A player in, in early position raised to $35. I called on the button with pocket nines, black nines, and a player in the big blind called. And the big blind, I'm not sure if he's a pro or not, but he seems like a good, thoughtful player. So we went three ways to the flop, which was queen, nine, seven, with the queen and seven of hearts. The big blind checked. The initial raiser bet $40, and I raised to $160, thinking I would raise with pocket nines, pocket sevens, and then also some heart draws, especially ones that also have straight draws going on. So hands like jack 10 of hearts, that sort of thing. The big blind surprisingly called and the initial raiser folded. So when the big blind calls here without having put in any money here on the flop before this, he's got something and that could be pocket sevens. It might also be queen seven suited, which defended out of the big blind. I don't know whether he would defend that hand, but I think a lot of players would. And he could also have some of those heart draws. So a hand like ace five of hearts, um, jack ten of hearts, king jack of hearts, king ten of hearts, ten eight of hearts, all these different heart draws, including a lot of them that have straight draws. Also because the nine is not a heart and I don't have the nine of hearts in my hand either. He could have something like 10 nine of hearts for a pair and a flush draw. So there's now $465 in the pot heading to the turn. And it's an offsuit jack. That is a jack that isn't a heart. So now the board is queen of hearts, offsuit nine, seven of hearts, offsuit jack. He checks and I think, okay, you know, a couple of the hands that he could have had on the flop uh, now made straights. So king 10 of hearts makes a straight. So does 10 eight of hearts. But there's a whole lot else going on here. And even if he has a straight, I can make a full house on the river. So I'm not too concerned. And so he checks and I bet $310 and he calls. When we head to the river, there's $1,085 in the pot and it's an offsuit queen. So now we have a full house, nines full of queens on a board of queen, nine, seven, jack, queen. He surprisingly leads out for $465 and he's got about a thousand dollars behind. So when he does this against worse players, I would certainly just go all in and expect them to reluctantly call with a straight or with who knows a queen or with pocket sevens. But I don't think this guy even leads here with a straight. I don't think it's a very good play. So I think I can rule those hands out for the most part. And that means the main value hands he should have here are pocket sevens, which we beat and maybe queen seven suited again, depending on whether he called with that preflop and we lose to uh, queen seven suited. I also think that if we were to go all in here, 
this player might be good enough to just fold pocket sevens. And the reason is that uh, in addition to pocket nines, I can also have, in his eyes, I can also have queen nine suited, uh, which called on the button preflop, and he loses to both those hands. So I'm not sure there's a lot of value actually here in going all in, despite the fact that we have a full house. So I do just call and he uh, turns over pocket sevens and we rake in the pot. From there, there's an interesting dynamic that develops at the table when an action player sits down two to my right. He's raising something like two thirds of his hands, usually to $60, which is six big blinds, which is just an amazing spot for me because uh, I have position on this player. I get to act after this player in most hands. And he's just putting in tons of money with lots of very weak stuff. So over the course of about two hours, I re-raise this guy maybe eight times. And generally I do this with good hands, but there have been a couple situations where I will have, say, pocket jacks, and then the flop will come ace, queen, deuce, and it'll go check, check, and then the turn will be a king, and it'll go check, check, and then the river is a nine. And it should be very clear at this point that I'm not in love with my hand, but the player, the action player checks, and I check back, and he shows 5-4 offsuit for just stone nothing. Um, and he could have put pressure on me and didn't. So over the two hours, I've, I've re-raised this guy maybe eight times, and I have won every single one of those pots. It's just an amazing, amazing situation. At the same time, there's another player who arrives at the table who I've never played with before and who I've never said a word to in my life. And for some reason, this player starts talking about me at the table saying I play tight and he hates players like me. Um, and I, I, first of all, I'm thinking, okay, I mean, there are actually lots of times in my poker career when I could be fairly described as playing tight. I, I definitely do a lot, but this is not one of those times. Like, is this guy even watching what I'm doing with this action player? Because I have just re-raised him over and over and over again. So it seems like this guy's not even really paying attention. He's just talking trash for no reason. I also realize that I've seen this player before. He is... Uh, a guy who played a fairly famous televised hand where his opponents were, he has two, it's a three-way hand where he has two opponents who are both all in with very strong hands and the camera doesn't pick up what this guy has as he's considering whether to call and he thinks about it for something like eight minutes. Uh, and finally folds and we never find out what he had. So I say, Hey, I, re I remember, I remember you. you. You're the guy who played that famous televised hand. And he says, no, I'm not. Um, which I know isn't true because I can see his player card from across the table and it's him. I know the name. It's him. So it seems to be bothering him that I've noticed this. So for quite a while afterwards, I just peppering him with random questions about this hand, asking him, did you have this? Did you have this? And every time I ask him about it, 
he seems to get angrier. So there's a hand later in the session where I raise the $35. He re-raises. Another player calls and I fold. And at the end of the hand, uh, this player who's been needling me ends up showing down ace three suited, which is fine. But then he says the reason why he re-raised it preflop was because I'm always bluffing when I raise the $35, um, which is funny because it's that's just my normal raise size at this stake. <laughs> so sort of a funny dynamic developing that leads to this hand in which I have pocket aces first to act and raise to $35. There are two callers and then it gets to the action player who has been re-raising a lot in addition to um, just raising a lot and in my head I'm going oh please oh please oh please and bless his heart he does re-raise to $140. He has also literally said that once he puts money in the pot pre-flop he is not folding. Uh, he is not folding before the flop. So this is just an amazing scenario. I raise again to three hundred seventy-five dollars. The first caller folds, and now the second caller raises again to eleven $1 hundred twenty-five dollars. I mean, and, and the action player folds. So this is just the stuff dreams are made of. I don't know what this guy is doing. Maybe he has trapped with pocket kings or pocket queens or ace king or something like that hoping that the action player re-raised and now he's gotten what he wanted and now he's going to spring the trap but i have aces so this is just such a, a great scenario um the player has what looks to be about two thousand dollars and i say looks to be because he's got his chips stacked irregularly and i i i didn't ask in the moment how much he had behind uh i wish i had but but it looked like about $2,000. And I thought, okay, I mean, so I'm thinking about sticking in $3,000, 300 big blinds preflop with pocket aces. And I'm not sure I would actually want to do that with any other hand here besides pocket aces, because this guy just looks so mega strong, which probably means that I should never do it. Or, which might mean that I should never do it. I mean, that's that's one approach I can take. So I don't want to let this guy off the hook. I don't want him hero folding pocket queens or something like that. So I just call. And so now there's $2,500 in the pot. There's what appears to be about $2,000 behind. And the flop comes king four deuce with the king and four of clubs so i've got pocket aces i do not have the ace of clubs so i check which i always would and he checks behind so still 2500 dollars in the pot the turn is the ace of clubs so now i have top set the board is king of clubs four of clubs offsuit deuce and then the ace of clubs and since the ace and king of clubs are accounted for and we each put in over a thousand dollars before the flop, it's, I mean, a, a flush is theoretically possible, but neither of us have that really. So I think, okay, this, this player, I don't know much about his game. He does not appear to be a pro. 
So if he's got a hand like Kings that he trapped on the flop or Ace King, he's not folding here ever really. And I don't see much value in checking, letting him check and potentially get there with say Queens with the queen of clubs or ace queen with the queen of clubs. If, if he, for some reason used that as a, as a bluff before the flop. So I just go all in and he thinks about it for several minutes and ends up calling the river is an offsuit queen and we show down and we're good. So I win his stack. I end up uh, counting up my chips after that. And I have $8,900 in front of me, which is a little bit more than I was anticipating. So it's, it's quite possible he had a bit more than $2,000, but I don't know the precise number. So a few minutes after that, the action player leaves and the game pretty much immediately breaks. So, uh, I end up with a $7,340 profit from a buy-in of $1,500. I think I'm going to take an extra few hours to myself today, but then probably head back to the casino in the evening to keep playing. I try not to be too affected positively by good days, just as I try not to be too affected negatively by bad days. But obviously this is a, this is a great session. I feel great about it. And hopefully I can continue doing well tonight. I make my living among whomever's around. Occasionally there are characters to be avoided or at least ignored. A quiet guy at the table watching a movie on one phone, texting on a second phone and playing online poker on a tablet. A guy with a Brillo pad voice telling stories full of dropped names while scanning the table to catch the eye of anyone who looks like he might be listening. A middle-aged guy who repeatedly coughs on his chips while playing one hand an hour and scrolling through the Tinder profiles of women 25 years younger. But most of the people I play with, I actually like. Poker players are a diverse group. They're largely, although not entirely, straight or straight-presenting men. We'll discuss why that is on a later episode. But they come from a variety of ethnic, class, and professional backgrounds. And I'll often end up in conversations where I learn about some job or hobby or city that's been central to one of their lives and that I'd never previously heard of. Many of these conversations develop into genuine friendships. These people often become contacts on my phone, and even sometimes drinking buddies or confidants. And these relationships usually develop after one of us has taken thousands of dollars from the other in a game where one player's good fortune correlates more or less directly with the misfortune of his opponent. It's strange that we live this way. Through poker, we develop relationships and modes of thought that most people would consider odd. We fight through dizzying financial swings. We play on a field that's constantly shifting. We alternate long periods of inactivity with jolts of intense excitement. As later episodes of this podcast unfold, we'll explore how poker players think and what it means to grind out a living in this game.
In episode two of Third Man Walking, I'll discuss what opponents who've just arrived at the table reveal about themselves before they've even played a hand. I'll also discuss how poker players manage bad luck and how we're able, mostly, to keep our emotions to ourselves. You can reach out to the show on Twitter at Third Walking and via email at thirdmanwalkingpodcast at gmail.com. See you next week.